Chapter 1 of Memoirs of the Author of A Vindication of the Rights of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Katie Coco. Memoirs of the Author of A Vindication of the Rights of Women by William Godwin. Chapter 1, 1759 to 1775. It has always appeared to me that to give to the public some account of the life of a person of eminent merit, deceased, is a duty incumbent on survivors. It seldom happens that such a person passes through life without being the subject of thoughtless calumny or malignant misrepresentation. It cannot happen that the public at large should be on a footing with their intimate acquaintance and be the observer of those virtues which discover themselves principally in personal intercourse. Every benefactor of mankind is more or less influenced by a liberal passion for fame, and survivors only pay a debt due to these benefactors when they assert and establish on their part the honor they loved. The justice which is thus done to the illustrious dead converts into the fairest source of animation and encouragement to those who would follow them in the same career. The human species at large is interested in this justice as it teaches them to place their respect and affection upon those qualities which best deserve to be esteemed and loved. I cannot easily prevail on myself to doubt that the more fully we are presented with the picture and story of such persons as the object of the following narrative, the more generally shall we feel in ourselves an attachment to their fate and a sympathy in their excellencies. There are not many individuals with whose character the public welfare and improvement are more intimately connected than the author of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. The facts detailed in the following pages are principally taken from the mouth of the person to whom they relate, and of the veracity and ingenuousness of her habits, perhaps no one that was ever acquainted with her entertains a doubt. The writer of this narrative, when he has met with persons that in any degree created to themselves an interest and attachment in his mind, has always felt a curiosity to be acquainted with the scenes through which they had passed, and the incidents that had contributed to form their understandings and character. Impelled by this sentiment, he repeatedly led the conversation of Mary to topics of this sort, and once or twice he made notes in her presence of a few dates calculated to arrange the circumstances in his mind. To the materials thus collected, he has added an industrious enquiry among the persons most intimately acquainted with her at the different periods of her life. Mary Wollstonecraft was born on the 27th of April, 1759. Her father's name was Edward John, and the name of her mother, Elizabeth, of the family of Dixons of Ballyshannon in the Kingdom of Ireland, her paternal grandfather was a respectable manufacturer in Spitalfields, and it is supposed to have left his son a property of about ten thousand pounds. 
Three of her brothers and two sisters are still living. Their names, Edward, James, Charles, Eliza, and Everina. Of these, Edward only was older than herself. He resides in London, James is in Paris, and Charles in or near Philadelphia in America. Her sisters have for some years been engaged in the office of governesses and private families, and both are at present in Ireland. I am doubtful whether the father of Mary was bred to any profession, but about the time of her birth, he resorted, rather perhaps as an amusement than a business, to the occupation of farming. He was of a very active and somewhat versatile disposition, and so frequently changed his abode as to throw some ambiguity upon the place of her birth. She told me that the doubt in her mind in that respect lay between London and a farm upon Epping Forest, which was the principal scene of the five first years of her life. Mary was distinguished in early youth by some portion of that exquisite sensibility soundness of understanding, and decision of character, which were the leading features of her mind through the whole course of her life. She experienced in the first period of her existence but few of those indulgences and marks of affection which are principally calculated to soothe the subjection and sorrows of our early years. She was not the favorite either of her mother or father. Her father was a man of a quick, impetuous disposition, subject to alternate fits of kindness and cruelty. In his family he was a despot, and his wife appears to have been the first and the most submissive of his subjects. The mother's partiality was fixed upon the eldest son, and her system of government relative to Mary was characterized by considerable rigor. She, at length, became convinced of her mistake, and adopted a different plan with her younger daughters. When, in the wrongs of woman, Mary speaks of the petty cares which obscured the morning of her heroine's life, continual restraint in the most trivial matters, unconditional submission to orders, which, as a mere child, she soon discovered to be unreasonable, because inconsistent and contradictory, and the being often obliged to sit in the presence of her parents for three or four hours together without daring to utter a word. She is, I believe, to be considered as copying the outline of the first period of her own existence. But it was in vain that the blighting words of unkindness or indifference seemed destined to counteract the superiority of Mary's mind. It surmounted every obstacle, and by degrees, from a person little considered in the family, she became in some sort its director and umpire. The despotism of her education caused her many a heartache. She was not formed to be the contented and unresisting subject of a despot, but I have heard her remark more than once that when she felt she had done wrong, the reproof or chastisement of her mother, instead of being a terror to her, she found to be the only thing capable of reconciling her to herself. The blows of her father, on the contrary, which were the mere evolutions of a passionate temper, instead of humbling her, 
roused her indignation. Upon such occasions, she felt her superiority and was apt to betray marks of contempt. The quickness of her father's temper led him sometimes to threaten similar violence toward his wife. When that was the case, Mary would often throw herself between the desperate and the victim with the purpose to receive upon her own person the blows that might be directed against her mother. She has even laid whole nights upon the landing place near their chamber door, when, mistakenly or with reason, she apprehended that her father might break out into paroxysms of violence. The conduct he held towards the members of his family was of the same kind as that he observed toward animals. He was, for the most part, extravagantly fond of them, but when he was displeased, and this frequently happened, and for very trivial reasons, his anger was alarming. Mary was what Dr. Johnson would have called a very good hater. In some instance of passion exercised by her father to one of his dogs, she was accustomed to speak of her emotions of abhorrence as having risen to agony. In a word, her conduct during her girlish years was such as to extort some portion of affection from her mother and to hold her father in considerable awe. In one respect, the system of education of the mother appears to have had merit. All her children were vigorous and healthy. This seems very much to depend upon the management of our infant years. It is affirmed by some persons of the present day, most profoundly skilled in the sciences of health and disease, that there is no period of human life so little subject to mortality as the period of infancy. Yet, from the mismanagement to which children are exposed, many of the diseases of childhood are rendered fatal, and more persons die in that than any other period of human life. Mary had projected a work upon this subject, which she had carefully considered and well understood. She has indeed left a specimen of her skill in this respect in her eldest daughter, three years and a half old, who is a singular example of vigorous constitution and florid health. Mr. Anthony Carlyle, surgeon of Soho Square, whom to name is sufficiently to honor, had promised to revise her production. This is but one out of numerous projects of activity and usefulness, which her untimely death has fatally terminated. The rustic situation in which Mary spent her infancy no doubt contributed to confirm the stamina of her constitution. She sported in the open air, and amidst the picturesque and refreshing scenes of nature, for which she always retained the most exquisite relish. Dolls and other amusements, usually appropriated to female children, she held in contempt, and felt a much greater propensity to join in the active and hardy sports of her brothers than to confine herself to those of her own sex. About that time, Mary completed the fifth year of her age. Her father removed to a small distance from his former habitation and took a farm near the whalebone upon Epping Forest, a little way out of the Chelmsford Road. In Michaelmas, 1765, 
he once more changed his residence and occupied a convenient house behind the town of Barking in Essex, eight miles from London. In this situation, some of their nearest neighbors were Bamber Gascoigne, Esquire, successively member of Parliament for several boroughs, and his brother, Mr. Joseph Gascoigne. Bamber Gascoigne resided but little on this spot, but his brother was almost a constant inhabitant, and his family in habits of the most frequent intercourse with the family of Mary. Here, Mr. Wollstonecraft remained for three years. In September 1796, I accompanied my wife in a visit to this spot. No person viewed with greater sensibility the scenes of her childhood. We found the house uninhabited and the garden in a wild and ruinous state. She renewed her acquaintance with the marketplace, the streets, and the wharf, the latter of which we found crowded with barges and full of activity. In Michaelmas 1768, Mr. Wollstonecraft again moved to a farm near Beverly in Yorkshire. Here the family remained for six years, and consequently Mary did not quit this residence till she had attained the age of fifteen years and five months. The principal part of her school education passed during this period, but it was not to any advantage of infant literature that she was indebted for her subsequent eminence. Her education in this respect was nearly such as was afforded by the day schools of the place in which she resided. To her recollections, Beverly appeared a very handsome town, surrounded by genteel families and with a brilliant assembly. She was surprised when she visited in 1795 upon her voyage to Norway to find the reality so much below the picture in her imagination. Hitherto, Mr. Wollstonecraft had been a farmer, but the restlessness of his disposition would not suffer him to content himself with the occupation in which for some years he had been engaged, and the temptation of a commercial speculation of some sort being held out to him, he removed to a house in Queen's Row in Hoxton near London for the purpose of its execution. Here he remained for a year and a half, but being frustrated in his expectations of profit, he, after that term, gave up the project in which he was engaged and returned to his former pursuits. During this residence at Hoxton, the writer of these memoirs inhabited, as a student, at the dissenting college in that place. It is perhaps a question of curious speculation to inquire what would have been the amount of the difference in the pursuits and enjoyments of each party if they had met and considered of each other with the same distinguishing regard in 1776 as they were afterwards impressed with in the year 1796. The writer had then completed the 20th and Mary the 17th year of her age, which would have been the predominant, the disadvantages of obscurity and the pressure of a family or the gratifications and improvements that might have flowed from their intercourse. One of the acquaintances Mary formed at this time was with a Mr. Clare, who inhabited the next house to that which was tenanted by her father, and to whom she was probably in some degree indebted 
for the early cultivation of her mind. Mr. Clare was a clergyman and appears to have been a humorist of a very singular cast. In his person, he was deformed and delicate, and his figure, I am sure, bore a resemblance to that of the celebrated Pope. He had a fondness for poetry and was not destitute of taste. His manners were expressive of a tenderness and benevolence, the demonstrations of which appear to have been somewhat too artificially cultivated. His habits were those of a perfect recluse. He seldom went out of his drawing room, and he showed to a friend of Mary a pair of shoes which had served him, he said, for 14 years. Mary frequently spent days and weeks together at the house of Mr. Clare. End of chapter one.